Irregular Hours, episode 129 for September 15th, 2020. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Love. And I'm Pam Bedore. And we are here with our second conversation, the second part of From Hell, the 1999 graphic novel written by Alan Moore with some pictures from Eddie Campbell. What, what? Uh, what do we see in our second part of this story, Pam? Wow, I have to say, I continue to be super impressed with this novel, uh, with the drawings as well as the text, and I'm just so intrigued. It's not like I've read a ton of Jack the Ripper stuff, but I am so fascinated by Morin Campbell's sort of broad strokes notion of putting these super interesting resonances into this Jack the Ripper story. So like in this section that we just read, chapters five through eight, there were two parts that really made me pause and I want to get your opinions on them. Chapter five, wasn't that so unexpected when we got that lovely scene of the conception of Adolf Hitler? Um, Were you guys as surprised as I was? Totally out there. (laughs) Just, just like, and now ladies and gentlemen, Let's go and think about something that's going to happen, what, about 40 years later? <laughs> but, 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 but it's like so cool to think that like Adolf Hitler, according to Alan Moore's notes, he did the math, would have been conceived at approximately the same time as the Whitechapel murders were happening. And then another super weird thing with temporalities in chapter seven, when you just flip the page and there's a television set in the middle of nowhere and you're like whoa whoa, whoa. it's 1888 why is there a tv on this page and again i needed the notes for that one too the notes mention the specific ghost story and i want to quote from more in the interpretation of the event here i have chosen to have gulls or a face hallucinations show him a vision of mr chapman the guy with the ghost looking back at him from the future thus suggesting possibilities beyond those of the conventional ghost story and more in keeping with the themes of From Hell. Now, I love that note because it gives you something but not too much. And so it's like, okay, guys, that television thing, that's very important. That's going to open up the themes of this novel. Cheerio, next note. So what do you think he's getting at? And, and, Correct me if you think it's wrong of me to put the Hitler and the television set together. But what do you think are these themes that he's talking about? What is, why do we have these super disparate, the television looking back and the conception of Hitler, who, of course, we know what Hitler's going to do. But in 1888, your characters have no idea. And Chip, this goes to your study of Alan Moore's work, right? This is, this is an Alan Moore thought, isn't it? This is, a, this is a trope of his. And in fact, I, I sent you the motion comic. I think it's chapter four of Watchmen where uh, Dr. Manhattan is playing with time. For, for Dr. Manhattan, a person who is losing his humanity and truly becoming a god at that point in, in that story, he is looking at time as existing all at the same time. The past, the present, and the future, they're just just thoughts for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he can experience them all at the same time. And almost as if the, um, uh, this, and, and this is playing part of it, 
Moore's interest in how we look at time certainly um, uh, could be one of the the um, the strategies of why he uses the the future, the the television set, and then recognizing this how I, I think with the Adolf Hitler thing is how connected um, even today, man. If they just think about we're talking about uh, what about 130 years ago is when that conception happened. And we are still, you know, we're the, the product of something that's that recent in history. I think that's the big theme that Alan Moore is giving us here is that how connected all of these things are, how there is evil being done. And it's not just Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper feels in this writing that he is a part of this larger thing that's happening in the world. And I also want to mention that in the notes that, uh, that Alan Moore writes, he's pulling from a number of books that he um, that he's using as sort of um, his basis for yeah, research to kind of put together our story. So Ghost of London, The West End by J.A. Brooks is also mentioned. And at some point, we'll have a mummy that's going to be introduced. And he, he based that on, uh, he watched Antique Roadshow, which which a lot of people do. Antique <laughs> Roadshow plays into this? Is that what you're telling oh, me? That's in the notes. Absolutely, that's in the notes. <laughs> now, I also wanted to note that there's a real, like, butterfly effect notion to this. That, you know, so Mr. and Mrs. Hitler have sex one night. They don't think anything of it. And then, you know, 100 years later, how many books do we have? And how many philosophy classes have had that question? If you could go back in time and kill Hitler, would mm -hmm. you? Like, that's this strange moment. And like, I think that putting that together with Jack the Ripper, which has I mean, those five killings in Whitechapel, obviously horrendous, but have had such an outsized media impact. Like what we were talking about when we were talking about Devil in the White City, we all know the name Jack the Ripper. Some of us don't know the name H.H. H. Holmes, who's who killed many, many more people at approximately the same time. I mean, this notion of like what gets captured into history mm -hmm. and and what are the different elements that put together a historical narrative that will survive? And one of them, certainly the fact that the, the killer isn't caught. So people can make up like Stephen Knight did this really interesting story where Queen Victoria herself is part of the plot. Conspiracies. I've never heard of them. Do they even exist today? No, we, we've eliminated conspiracies in 2020. Don't worry about them. We've got all of our friends from Q. Kind of saying. <laughs> friends of Q. Yes. Friends of Q. <laughs> I'll bring up the Tiger King too, just to throw Oh, good. Just, thank goodness. It's been a couple weeks. It's been a while. It's been a while since Chip mentioned the, the Tiger King. Good. We see here anti-Semitism is also a part of this broader idea of what's happening in the world. Not necessarily tied to... Hitler, but certainly in that same vein. I kind of threw that in there. And, and part of what I noticed was early in, in our, our story, we get some casual kind of just kind of throw off lines 
But by the time we get to the end of chapter eight, I think that's the end of chapter eight, um, you know, we get a deliberate writing on the wall where um, Gull goes and he misspells Jews. But Probably anyway, on purpose. Yep. But he writes it on the wall in chalk. So, I mean, let's just start off with this, that the casual use was earlier. And then the deliberate use was in the A. But you know, why 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 would Moore include this? I, I think that lots of things haven't changed in the world, and the idea of us versus them is a part of this conversation here. Just like we have in our country right now, the idea of these people versus those people, and the separation, the the anti-Semitism, blaming somebody else. Uh, to try to, I don't know, drum up, I don't know, are you drumming up something or are you just trying to blame somebody else to throw off the detectives here? Well, there, there was characterizations. Um, when I'm, I'm talking, you know, the casualness of the early stuff, those truly are, they're just prejudices mm-hmm. uh, kind of being just thrown out there like, oh, the deliberate part is, is different. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's certainly, Gull was certainly looking to point and you know create a trail or something of that nature and i thought it was fascinating that um so he writes on on the wall in chalk this you know deliberate misplacement and then when one of the officers or one of the inspectors is goes to wipe it off someone's like whoa whoa you can't wipe that off it's part of a crime scene and he's like i don't care i'm wiping it off anyway and so there's two things that are sort of opposites here that you know like the police really shouldn't be messing around with crime scenes. History is going to be based on the evidence of that moment. But then the other thing is, since it was a false clue anyway, like go police inspector, right? <laughs> so, so accidentally really, doing the right thing in the investigation. Good what, job. Right what would Sherlock Holmes do? That's what we have to ask. He hasn't <laughs> haven't read enough Sherlock Holmes at that point. <laughs> No, but, you know, I'm glad you bring up Sherlock Holmes, because in the very first story of Study in Scarlet, you have the word Rach, R-A-C-H-E, on the wall, and mm-hmm. it means revenge. But then when they redo it in the BBC version, it's like, of course, it's not German for revenge. It's someone trying to write Rachel, which is the password to the cell phone. And so, you know, there's these all the <laughs> it's actually the exact same move, right? It's that notion of like, language is an absurdly complex and ineffective means of communicating with each other but it's the only one we have and it's across history we communicate across history as well as as well as across time across time as well as space but look at this scene right here does that look like sherlock holmes and watson but look at the hat they're out in the moors anyway i thought immediately thought of that and pulled that out of the story just to kind of bring it up because i immediately when i was watching and i said oh my goodness the, we got two characters out there. One looks, this looks very, uh, was a Baskerville's type of uh, situation because of the location of it and happening. And also the dress that they, that they kind of put these, uh, two, these two men in. That it could very easily be, uh, you know, a Sherlock Holmes and Watson's type story. With because the, the hat. Because, <laughs> well, it's also the Moors. They're in the Moors. Do you remember this scene? I, I can't say that I do. So tell me. This is this is where Eddie is out there. And this is the Queen's uh, grandson, the one who okay. got in all the, the issues. This is where he's kind of in um, 
depression. And then uh, this this gentleman to the left of him keeps saying he keeps calling the queen grandmother, and he and he goes like he can't really use those terms. Anyway, there's there's some other things implied there. But my, my point being is that this was put in there deliberately by Moore. And this was to be reminiscent of a Sherlock Holmes type of uh, uh, trope you know, of, of going out there. Okay. And as you might imagine, there's tons of fan fiction of Sherlock Holmes solving the Jack the Ripper case, because of course mm-hmm. they are happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Chip, I really loved how, when you talked about looking at these pictures, you said, when I was watching this, instead of reading this. And I think that is sort of the impression that you get reading a graphic novel, especially that there are some parts of this novel that really have very, very few words and where the story is really told for two, three, sometimes even four pages at a time through just visuals. And it does give you that impression of watching something rather than reading it. It it can throw you a little bit. Steve, what we were talking as we were preparing where there was a scene that ended and another one began. You're like, okay, where? Yeah, where? the first few pages where we're seeing Adolf Hitler's conception. Yes. And then on on page four, the scene changes. And the only clue that we have for that is the art. There is no text that says, okay, now we're back in London, right. not in Austria. But the art style certainly gives us the information that we need. This is one of the more interesting art style parts of this whole this whole book so far. Well, and another place where that also very, very soon after that, Steve, we get that long sequence, which contrasts Polly's sleep with William Gull's sleep. And the art there is so amazing because all the William Gull scenes, I don't, I don't know how you, <laughs> I don't know, I, the art word, it's very soft. I believe it's watercolor. Yeah, it kind of, it kind of has that look, doesn't it? Yeah. And if you think of the, um, Monet's and stuff like that they are kind of dreamy looking a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you have Polly's like very sharp angular lines. Back to that scratchy style that we've yes. seen the, up to this point. But right there where that scene changes, we get that softer yep. and the juxtaposition between that and the harsher, scratchier art style. There you go. And, and I think you just hit it right there. The scratchy, the, the life that our prostitute is living is very harsh and, and unforgiving. And uh, goals, at least as we're reading this, is kind of idealistic. And, and uh, look, there's um, certainly a, a little bit of leisure into it where everything is much more important and much more dramatic to her life um, in the scratchy art. And I was super impressed here with how more captures poverty, the poverty and the lack of options for these women characters who have, for whatever reasons, and he goes through the different reasons for each one, turned to a life of prostitution. And in that long juxtaposition between Polly and Gull, we we find this expression that I'd never heard. I love how in the notes, Moore says, oh, you guys know that colloquial English expression. I'm so tired, I could sleep on a clothesline. And I'm like, I have never heard that expression in my life, but I kind of love it. And this idea that, people who didn't have anywhere to sleep actually could like rent a spot on a clothesline that would keep them from falling over. It's, it's so desperately sad. Mm -hmm. And this notion that there would be an actual expression 
of it that this isn't that this would be a norm for for some people and then you know again juxtaposed with gulls very soft effete lifestyle mm-hmm. well and it certainly um as we as we kind of see this you see the importance of the bar uh of it because i mean i don't remember what time they had to get out of there but it was like 7 a.m you're out of here oh and- the pub yeah the 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 importance of the pub in English society has has been a theme throughout time. But yes, we see that here as the place to gather. And pub stands for public house, right? Correct. It's a, the local place you can get a drink. But really, if you're sleeping on a clothesline and you got to be out early in the morning, what are you going to do? Stand around uh, until a pub opens up? Then you can right. go and sit down somewhere. And you know, at the same time, they're getting in midnight one two o'clock whatever time mm-hmm. they get in they're not getting a lot of sleep either it's, it is very tough it's a yeah. very tough life yeah but the idea of the public house not just to go get a drink but to have a place to be that is that thematic piece that is again in so many english stories because that's the way it was that was the place where you could go and have a seat and have a conversation and have a society oh my goodness and i just keep thinking of um the uh the fight that the uh, husband and wife had and she's like i'm going to leave and she just leaves and that just sets her poverty mm-hmm. right there there's no nowhere for her to go there's no forgiveness either i mean it's mm-hmm. just oh it's so awful and I think the other thing is that as we saw the various characters looking for a place to sleep each night, I thought that was also um, very poignant. And the fact that they would borrow money from someone else who was just a smidge less poor than them. And then you had, you know, people with like untold wealth just walking by and having no connection between the two halves of society. And the 1890s was um, the time of the greatest wealth disparity in both the US and the UK until about 2016 or 17. Um, mm-hmm. We hit it again. But yeah, we're, we're definitely there. And the pubs are closed because of the coronavirus. So that community of people doesn't have a place to go right now. And, and we're feeling it. I'm feeling it. As somebody who loves to talk to people, and I love talking to the two of you th- through Zoom, it's not, the same. not <laughs> even <laughs> close to the same as the conversations that I would be having if we had the conventions open. Open and had the pubs open the the bars are uh, a big problem right now in america so i i have a question and, and this is what and this comes to one of the scenes that's depicted here is that our, one of the prostitutes her only like regular assignment like she knows what the assignment is or what how she was hired she gives this person a bath weekly. Mm-hmm. And what I was asking, or one of the questions I had was, were prostitutes also caregivers at the time? I mean, were they people who um, among themselves were used for uh, sexual pleasure? Were they also people who did things for um, people who didn't have, you know, a spouse or someone to, to help care for them. 
And I think that, you know, sex work involves a lot of different elements. And so I think when you think of prostitute, you immediately think specifically of sexual acts. But a lot of sex workers talk about being therapists in a sense, about being people that people can talk to, serving as escorts, which may or may not include any kind of sexual interaction, but is just this notion of having someone to go somewhere with, to talk to, to be with. I did a class on um, sex work in graduate school. It was super fascinating. Um, there's something called professional huggers. So you could pay someone to hug you and there's zero sex involved. But it's it, so the whole notion of the, the variety of acts that, that fall under prostitution or sex work really speak to this loneliness. And I thought that scene, that scene I thought was very touching how this, you know, older, very overweight guy has, has this younger woman come in and help him with his bath. And it didn't seem like there was really a sexual element there, but who are you going to hire to do that? You know, you would think, oh, a nurse's aide, but that's not a system that's in place at this time. So, so it's a prostitute. And there's, there's such a lot of debate, even within feminist circles on how we should think about sex work. And we're not going to solve that here today. Alan Moore is not going to solve it, but I think he's raising it in he interesting is, ways. Yes, he is raising the issue here. And then this scene gets to the the rest of the story. And, and I'm shouting outside, sitting on my outside couch in luxury, reading this chapter going, oh, why did that have to happen? How did that, how did, how did that go to the narrative like where is that in yes in the broader strokes he's giving us the broader picture and that's what he's trying to give us here <laughs> doesn't doesn't every story deserve a happy ending uh, oh, Jim. <laughs> so not the point that he's <laughs> good night everybody <laughs> okay so as we read the story of the five prostitutes killed by Jack the Ripper in 1888, let's disregard that comment by Chip. <laughs> let's move to other depictions that Moore does really well. So um, I, I do think his, his representation of the different facets of sex work are pretty incredible and specifically sex work in the Victorian period, but so many of those issues are still with us today. Also, that intersection between police and media, which is such a part of so much contemporary detective fiction as well. I think it's super interesting how he goes through the politics of how detectives get assigned to things. And like Aberline, who we had met right in the prologue of this book, he thought he was finally out of Whitechapel and he was on to a much more posh assignment. And they're like, hey, buddy, you know Whitechapel super well. You're going to be on this case. He doesn't want to be on this case. Mm -hmm. And he actually had just had this promotion. And even though he keeps his rank, it feels like a demotion to be sent back to Whitechapel. And this notion that, like, who's investigating the case and, and what motives and what kind of energy they're going to bring to the investigation, that really does have an impact. Like, why wasn't the Jack the Ripper case ever solved? Who knows? But it could be either that there was this deep corruption there was this masonic plot or that like the police were dealing with something else in personal life and political life that wasn't comfortable you know, like, so i think he brings that up really nicely 
And it's so interesting. It is so interesting to think about who is on the case and that leads to how much energy and what direction the energy is is focused in order to solve this crime. And boy, that that scene was a very short scene, but it's it's uh, it's got a lot to it because we know Aberline is the guy because we were introduced to him so early. Interesting. And not only that, we, we he was the right guy. He certainly knows this area. He certainly can fit in and get information as he's looking for it. Certainly time plays out in the sense that there's not uncovering a lot of information, but he seems to be at least on the right trail. But uh, he didn't want to be there, Chip. Like, that's the thing. Absolutely. And so, so somebody, you know, in central office thought, oh, this is the right guy to do it. But he didn't feel the same. And I did like have chapter six is structured around the dates. And you see mm-hmm. the month of September passing by. Mm-hmm. The police are like, Hmm, could be this guy, leather apron. Oh yeah, could be this, could be that. And the police are sort of fighting this secondary narrative that's being created by the media, right? And it was kind of interesting. I wasn't shocked that he did this because the Jack the Ripper story does involve these notes from Jack the Ripper that are, you know, the consensus is they were probably written by a journalist and not by the killer. Right. So... This I, this notion of newsmen actually talking about like, hey, we have to make up a story. We got to sell our papers. Mm-hmm. Um, we can we can create like this leather apron. He's obviously a butcher. Oh, maybe he's a doctor. Like this, you know, what are the different elements? And in chapter six, they actually talk about penny dreadfuls. And so penny dreadfuls are the British version of dime novels. So newsprint works on newsprint that come out weekly that cost you very little whether it's a penny or a dime and actually some of the dime novels only cost a nickel just so you know in those in those texts you had news printed right next to sensational fiction and there's zero indication of which is which Mm-hmm. And you should probably tell Orson Welles about that if he ever reads War of the Worlds. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and how interesting... And us today! Come on, man! <laughs> how interesting that this issue has not changed very much. Here we are reading this fiction about this true crime where the Devil in the White City that we just finished is this true story that is given that element of fiction that it makes it entertainment and that line between those penny dreadfuls and the true crime here those newsmen were definitely sensationalizing this crime trying to sell newspapers oh i'm i'm gonna go right to something that i sent over to uh pam this week it was um uh Parjan, um david wong where he was actually he actually quoted I, I, part of what I sent over was a quote on where news became the sensa- even more sensationalized for us. And he described it when uh, we moved from reading our news online through a browser to reading our news through a Facebook feed. 
how the titles of the stories got even, or the news got even more like, you need to act on this right now. Mm-hmm. And the writing style became, because it's being read off of a cell phone, mm. it becomes even more urgent. Like, this is right now. And, and basically, the argument that David was making is that's where the anger that we're feeling in the news, as we read the news mm. turn right now, how it's sort of built. And his argument, which I think is a fair argument, I don't know how you would put together your study on that, but since he was the editor at Cracked at the time, he said they could watch it through the numbers between when we switch from reading through the browser to reading through our Hmm. cell phone. So as much as we can look at the London press as being part of the buildup of Jack the Ripper, this, this tale and Certainly, it's, it's an important city, and this is a nasty thing that ended up happening. We're still part of that evolution even today. And, and it's a long evolution. The idea of sensational journalism has certainly been with us since the 1800s, where we're reading here. And the idea that these men would make up this letter sent sent to them from this guy calling himself Jack the Ripper, uh, we it's... Uh, Pretty disturbing to think about what what our sources of news are. Inquiring minds want to know. Mm-hmm. Five things in your kitchen will kill you. Tune in at 10 to find out which ones. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the things I love about the end notes here is how they're not just telling you, like, where he got... You know, Alan Moore uses his end notes not just to say here's where I found this information, although he does that a lot. But he also comments on how history gets constructed and how fiction gets constructed. And when he's talking about Aberline, there's this wonderful end note where he says, as with so much of From Hell, when we know the details of a person's life, but not how he or she felt, then we must resort to fiction unless we are to exclude feelings altogether, which I don't feel inclined to do. And I have to say, to me, that's one of the really big differences between Devil in the White City and From Hell, is that Larson really tried to, as much as possible, keep things nonfiction and his- historical, historically grounded. And Moore is like, no, no, no. And he tells you that. He's like, I, he did a ton of research. He read like every book on this extremely well-documented case. But then he's like, you know what? We know where Aberline lived. We know what his assignment was. We don't know how he felt about it. And here's one way that he might have felt about it. And I think that's it's very compelling, mm-hmm. um, but it's also very possibly untrue. And Eric Larson did a ton of research, too, for, for his book, yeah. and he did put in the emotions of the characters in those moments. Mm-hmm. The idea of, I think, think this is the way that H.H. Holmes felt at the moment of this murder. But that was momentary, not broad strokes like Alan Moore is giving us. Well, and that's why it feels like nonfiction, whereas this feels like fiction. It's so fun to read these two books next to each other, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Good choice, Chip. (laughs) (laughs) 
Those affirmations work real well. Thank you. <laughs> One of my favorite parts of this section is the idea of hope that we are given here. We have these terrible things that are happening. We have these terrible situations that these people find themselves in. But yet we, we are given this glimpse of hope for each of these ladies. Like we get to know these characters and they, we know from our perspective from history that these ladies die at the hands of this person but we really feel we we've talked about this privately that that these ladies could be okay at the end of this book there's two parts uh, princess leia is not at all in this story <laughs> that's what rebellions are built on hope Samper, who was the um, who was the person who described um poor Americans as feeling that they were um, temporarily uh, displaced millionaires or something to, the, to that uh, interest. Wow. Um, I want to, it could have been Sandberg. It could be. Sounds, but so, sounds Sandbergian. But somebody said that. Mm -hmm. um, but w we do get this feeling of hope because the prostitutes, and I'm, I'm sorry just to refer to them as, but there's a group of, they all seem to, or one of the things that Moore does with his writing is, they're working towards something. They're given this opportunity of like, oh, if we just go out and work out and, you know, with the fish or whatever it is at the time, um, maybe we can put together enough money to you know, work real jobs or something of that mm -hmm. nature. But they're not working out. You can just see how difficult it is to move from this, the situation of poverty you know, to a, um, an area that's a little bit above poverty to where you can start building wealth. Um, on the grand scheme, that's probably the, one of the greatest things that we've experienced over the last, say, 300 years is that so many people were in poverty and, and we, as a, as a uh, world, the individuals have been able to crawl from, uh, from that situation. But on the, on, the, on the personal note for any individual person, you know, it's just, it's a miracle to, to get that. And um, and I'm sorry to keep going on with this, but you could almost think of a person in China who's moved from a rural area to the city for the first time today, and they get put in jobs that most of us would find too demanding or maybe too monotonous that we really don't want to work in. But they're moving from poverty to something that's just a little bit above it. And what, what do you think about this? Yeah, that tiny bit of optimism, that tiny crumb of if we do this, then we can move on to our goals. We get that so well written here in this story. And yes, Foxconn is a company that will hire a ton of people to put together our cell phones for us and our shoes and whatever else that we need globally. And we might look at those jobs and go, oh, that's terrible. They're not paying these people nearly enough. But you're right. From their perspective, this could be the thing that, that drives them to the next stage. But from the outside, we still recognize that there are nets, but around the building because people mm -hmm. are killing themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, so, mm -hmm. I mean, it really puts this, this interesting moral dilemma. We have. So here's the question, you know, does having these glimpses of hope, does it change how the reader views the victims? 
And two things really stood out to me on that point, which is that um, as you spend time with these women who are about to get killed, and we know as readers, right? We know their names. <laughs> oh, yeah, Polly Nickel. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's mm-hmm. a, the Ripper victim. So, but I'm so impressed by their resiliency, right? That they really go through some super tough times, but they keep uh, trying, trying again, trying something new. I was also really struck by the fact that even though they have this super close community of women, these four women and others as well, they look to men to try to find a way out of their extreme poverty. Hmm. And so, like, I mean, Aberline's a great example of how he, like, pretends he's a saddle maker. And, you know, he's chatting, he's chatting with people at the bar or whatever. And I do think that Moore does a wonderful job of showing again how very limited the options are. And this is, we are just entering first wave feminism, but these are women who are not part of that movement. And- but the discussions are being had. They are they are having these discussions, calling themselves the four horrors of the apocalypse, which I <laughs> yes, still love. So I great. still love that yeah. line. They are actively trying to get whatever their goal is and it's different for all of them but stability though they're trying to find stability correct and and hoping and thinking and working toward their goals that's that's what we see here but we already know that Uh hot is cast yeah, that's the idea. <laughs> well, the idea of fate, the idea of do we have real ability to make our choices? Do we have free will or is there just fate? This is destiny. Well, and and also the ability the idea of temporality, right? So, mm-hmm. <laughs> since we are in the future of this story, we don't mm-hmm. know what happened. So is that fate or is that time? Hmm. We should read more Terry Pratchett because fate and time are two different characters and they have very different ideas. Exactly. <laughs> yes, I agree to reading Terry Pratchett, my dear. <laughs> so this is still an interesting story. We still get interesting characters. We still get uh, Eddie Campbell's beautiful renditions of these scenes and I admire his ability to give us these pictures despite the fact that I'm not uh, uh, overly eager about certain aspects of of uh, the the scenes that he's drawing but well, it's okay <laughs> we're, we're all humans Steve most of With us all of our anatomical <laughs> parts exactly Ah, yes, Pam. That's true. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for, for thank actually... you to Eddie for sharing that. That's right. Yeah, thank you for not actually saying penises that time. No problem. <laughs> I know your sensitivities. Thank you. Now, guys, I don't know if it struck you, but I thought that so the chapter titles are really great, and I do like the little quotations at the beginning of each chapter that come from all over the place. And there was a W.H. Auden second coming one this time, which made me really happy. But boy, the title of chapter eight, Love is Enough. Whew. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting thought that I think really goes with this question of hope and pessimism and how more actually raises hope for these characters, even within a narrative where their fate is known by time. 
And so that idea that love is enough, even if you're murdered, even if you're going to be a famous member of history for a very, very bad reason, the fact that these women have optimism and they have love. And we see that again and again, real love for their children, for each other, for life. I think of the people around them too. So they they become the support and they're willing to sacrifice for those who they love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's, there's definitely a depth to Alan Moore's writing that is fascinating. Yeah. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. So Pam, what is our assignment for next week? Part three, my friends, chapters nine through 12 of From Hell, and I am super excited to get reading. You think it's going to get worse? Do you think that, that we're going to get, do you think that the murders are going to keep happening, Pam? There's one more, you guys, one oh, okay. more murder. So that means there's going to be some chapters with no murders at all. You'll really enjoy those, Steve. I will enjoy those chapters. Those, those will be flowers and butterflies. Chocolate and puppy dogs. <laughs> oh, and you know, chapter nine, the, the name of it is From Hell. <laughs> Great. I look Enjoy forward to Enjoy your assignment. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying this as much as we are at, on the level that you are enjoying it. If you need more information, give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Our website is sandwiches at irregularhours.com. Our email is sandwiches at irregularhours at gmail.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. You can go and listen to our voices on YouTube now. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Irregular hours i'm steve foder i'm chip hassenclaw and i'm pam bedor we'll see you in the future with grapes and penises <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>